Hi there to the Journey Church family. How y'all doing? Did you have a great week? Right on. Glad to hear that. You know that for the past few months, we've been in this run of messages that we call Becoming Spiritual Champions, and today, we're going to bring it all in for a landing, and I'm sure that you've, at some point in your life, been on an airplane that when it landed, people applauded, and so maybe you'll be doing that about this message series, and we're going to finish today on this trait of spiritual championship. It's this one. Spiritual champions strive to change the world in small but life-impacting ways. Spiritual champions strive to change the world in small but life-impacting ways. And to be real honest, we struggle with that kind of a truth, don't we? Uh, We struggle with the small but life-impacting ways part of that, don't we? But it isn't like we struggle for lack of desire or lack of effort. We struggle instead because if it's not a big deal, then we very often feel like our contribution doesn't in any way matter. Like... If it's not a big deal, we're not really making a difference. It doesn't really matter, so why bother? After all, this is America, is it not? This is America. And in the United States of America, it's true. Bigger is best. We don't do small in the United States. Our culture propagates this concept that if it isn't a big deal, then it doesn't really matter, don't we? And it's this sort of all-star, star-studded culture that feeds that monster. And it is a monster. It's the biggest and the best and the most that gets the attention, right? But what we don't often stop and think about is the reality that Kobe Bryant did not start off being what he is today. He did not start where he is today. Rick Warren in the Christian world, Bill Hybels in the Christian world, they did not start off where they are today. Susan Boyle didn't start off where she is to. Oh, wait, she did, didn't she? But that just makes the point all the better, does it not? The overnight superstar sensation is the incredibly rare exception to the rule that the big deals of the world very, very, very rarely ever start off as the big deal but instead were built brick by brick, small step by small step, decision by decision. But no one was there with a video camera capturing all those small steps, were they? But those small steps are just what it took for whoever it is. Kobe Bryant, Hybels, just fill in the blank with your favorite superstar, so that they could be where they are now, what they are now, having what we like to call meteoric impact, right? And that all, at the end of the conversation, adds up to mean that meteoric impact for and inside the kingdom of God is all about small but life-impacting decisions, small but life-impacting actions, small but life-impacting steps, small but life-impacting investment. And it's to that end that Jesus Christ himself, he taught us to pray this funny prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. But in reality, we should probably more like call it our prayer, shouldn't we? Right? Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray it. He taught his followers to pray it. He only prayed it one time, right? So is it really the Lord's Prayer? 
because he taught us to pray this thing with regularity. Our prayer seems much more appropriate than the Lord's prayer, does it not? I'm going to start calling it our prayer, if you don't mind. And there's this part of our prayer, I'll start right now, that points us right toward this trait of spiritual championship that we're talking about today, this trait of spiritual champions striving to change the world in small but life-impacting ways. And it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. If you've got a text, I'd invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. You know this verse. We've talked about it before. May your kingdom come soon. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, we've talked an awful lot about the kingdom of God around here. It's sort of part of our collective community vocabulary in this place as a people. And we do that and we've done that because the kingdom of God is honestly one of the most significant things that Jesus, one of the most significant topics that Jesus ever talked about. The establishment of the kingdom of God is why Jesus came after all. Right? Some people go, well, Jesus just came to live and he just came to die, right? No, he actually came to start, to inaugurate, to launch the kingdom of God. That's the very reason why he was incarnated. It wasn't just live, die kind of a thing. There was a lot of time in between and that was important time, launching time. But we talk about the kingdom of God and we're like, what in the world It's a little murky about what it even is. It is not all that clear, is it? Jesus used sort of these crazy stories and crazy images, crazy metaphors, crazy similes to tell us what the kingdom of God is like. Let's just take a little survey of some of those together. Starting in Matthew 22, verse 2, Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven could be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. And invitations had been sent, but the people who had been been invited did not show up, and that made the king quite unhappy. The kingdom of God can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. That's kind of weird. Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. He's going to do everything he can to acquire that parcel. The next verses, 13, 45, and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Sell everything you own. The kingdom of God is that big of a deal. Sell everything you own. How about this one? This gets a little trippy. The next chunk of verses 13 47 to 48 again the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind when the net was full they dragged it up onto the shore sat down and sorted the good fish into crates and threw the bad ones away that's kind of weird sorting out good fish from bad fish i hope i'm a good fish Matthew 20, verses 1 to 15. I'll read the whole thing. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. This does not seem fair. I'll just say it from the outset. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work at 9 o'clock in the morning. He was passing through the marketplace, saw some people standing around doing nothing. Must have been a recession. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. 
At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. There were still people standing there. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, saw some more people standing around. That's quitting time, right? He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them to go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in, pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid, what, a day's wage? When they received their pay, what'd they do? They protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay the last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? The kingdom of God is like that. That's weird. Matthew 13. Here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like This is one of my favorites, a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree. Birds come and make its nest in its branches. The smallest of all seeds. The next one, Matthew 13, 33. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Now that's sexist because men can bake bread too, I'll have you know. I don't do it, but they can. We can. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a person used in making bread. Even though he or she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. That is fantastic. What an image of the kingdom of God. It permeates. It fills. It covers. Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I do not believe that the eye of the needle was a gate in the wall in Jerusalem, just so you know. We're talking about literal camel, literal needle here. That's difficult, right? We'd all qualify as rich, by the way. We all pass. We are. Luke 18, yeah, some of you laugh. Nobody told me. You are. Luke 18. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't watch this, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. What does that mean? How like a child? What trait of a child? I'm not sure. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone, this is brutal, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's brutal. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I didn't make that up. That's Jesus talking. Luke 12, 31. This is fantastic. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. Oftentimes we go about that the other way, don't we? We'll seek everything else first and then sort of tack on our concern for the kingdom of God. Uh Uh-uh. 
Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. All those texts, you sort of take it as a whole, and you see Jesus saying, look, there's going to be a day that's coming when there is going to be what one scholar calls the great reversal When prostitutes and tax collectors, when hookers and robbers will enter the kingdom of God while the religious elite will be kept out of the kingdom of God. My kingdom, says Jesus Christ, is an upside down kind of kingdom. It's topsy-turvy where the customary and where the expected, where the normal, whatever normal might be, will be absolutely turned onto its head. The kingdom of God is a topsy-turvy, interesting kind of place. And Jesus teaches us, his followers, to pray this prayer, a prayer that actually invokes and invites the kingdom of God. But what in the world are we praying? What are we praying? Especially when we pray that line, may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying? It's a unique prayer, beyond unique. Because we all know, and we would all agree very easily, that God's kingdom is heaven, right? And heaven is the place where everything, and I do mean everything, operates as an extension of God's nature and as an extension of God's character. Things are arranged in heaven just the way God likes them. Heaven is a place of joy because God himself is a river of joy. Heaven is a place of truth because God is the source of all truth. There are no untruths in heaven. Get that. We live in a world that is filled with so much untruth, it's hard for us to imagine such a place, that only truth exists. There's no spinning of the truth in heaven. Partial and half-truths are not the tools, the MO of heaven. They are not used by people to get their own way, to get ahead. And I could go on and on and on about heaven, but you get it. Heaven is the way God wants it to be because heaven is God's place. It's his place. It is an extension of who he is. God's kingdom is heaven, the sphere of God's effective will. And interestingly, God is also called the king of this earth. He's also called the king of this earth. Look at Psalm 47 too. That can be a little paradigm bending for us. For the Lord most high is awesome. He is the great king of all the earth. Whoa. Look at Psalm 74, 12. You, O God, are my king from ages past, bringing salvation to the earth. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. And this, talking about this, is your kingdom. So we learn that the sphere of God's effective will is heaven and also earth. Because God is also the king of this earth. And we hear things like that and we're like, well, wait just a minute, right? It causes us to more than scratch our heads, doesn't it? And for me, and maybe for you too, it actually raises inside of me this strange tension. Do you feel it? 
this very strange tension. Like, can that really be true? Can God really be king of both places? Especially based on what we know about our enemy, Satan, and his role as ruler of the air, as the sacred text calls him. Sure, we'll buy, easily we'll buy the fact that God is the king of heaven. We've got that down. We understand that. We get that. But how in the world can God be the king of the earth, especially in light of everything that we see going on around us every single day? Just flip on any 24-hour news channel, and there it is, front and center. Like, look at the Middle East, and you go, seriously? God is the king of the Middle East? And that literal and figurative powder keg over there? Everything that's on the verge of exploding, God is the king of that? Is God, this week in particular, really the king of the Koreas? And this sort of unsettling stir in that region of the world, like right now? Is God really the king of the infant that my friend Tim held in his arms when we were in Ethiopia just this last fall, an infant who had been left in a black plastic bag outside the gates of that children's home, abandoned, just left for someone else to find because mom, for whatever reason, just couldn't keep her? What about another Ethiopian that I know, a young man named Andrew, His dad died when he was just a wee little boy, seven years old or so. His mom was pregnant when Andrew's dad died, and she gave birth to Andrew's little sister. But in the process of giving birth to Andrew's little sister, she died on the dirt floor of her family's hut in very rural Ethiopia. And in just a moment, Andrew, age seven years old, mind you, became dad and caretaker of a brand new infant, his own sister. Imagine that. One orphan, age seven, raising another orphan, age seven minutes. And we hear all that, and we go like, seriously? God is the king of all of that? You're you're kidding, right? It's what we ask when we're honest. You're kidding. What kind of king is God in light of the fact that it feels like, and I just mean feels like, we're getting our tails kicked up one side and down the other, day in and day out. But we see the Bible very clearly teaches that God is the king of heaven. He's also the king of earth. And so there exists this tension that exists down to the depths of our soul. And this tension is fantastically captured by men who are much smarter than me. They put it this way. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. There it is. Speaking of tension. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. And you look on that and you let that wash over you for just a moment and you think, man, Does that ever scoop up and contain the truth that the sacred text lays out for us about this kingdom of God thing? Yes, absolutely. The kingdom of God is here. 
Yes, absolutely. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's been birthed. It's been founded. It's been started. Yes, Jesus established his beachhead right here on the planet in enemy territory, if you will. Yes, Jesus' death has defeated death. Jesus' death and resurrection has defeated and conquered death. Yes, he has made by his death and resurrection a way for us to live in relationship with him. Yes, absolutely, the kingdom of God started out just like a mustard seed, incredibly small, almost invisible to the naked eye. But it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, is it not? The kingdom of God, yes, absolutely. It's like yeast, almost imperceptible, permeating and infiltrating and expanding all around the world right now while we sit in this room. And you want proof that the kingdom of God is ever expanding and not shrinking back. Do you know that this, according to almost every scholar on the subject, is the greatest period of global evangelism in the history of humankind? We're in it right here, right now. More missionaries carrying the gospel to more places than ever before in all of human history. 60%, 60% of the world's Christ followers live, watch this, in the global south. The global south. If you're a Christ follower in the global north, that's where we live, by the way, we're in the minority of Christ followers on planet earth. That's staggering. Do you know which country on planet earth is seeing the most converts to Christianity right now? China, you got it. Absolutely, it's China. And that, when you think on it for just a moment, is amazing. Because 30 or 50 or even 100 years ago, that was absolutely not the case. Not even close. The kingdom of God, think about this, is way different now than it was 1,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, That's because the kingdom of God is actually here. It's here. And yet at the same time it's here, it's not fully here, is it? And we live in this, with this keen awareness of that reality. Look at Romans 8.22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. All creation has been groaning as in the pains of child. I've never felt those. I hear they're not good. Paul brilliantly captures the tension of that phrase, the kingdom of God is already but not yet, in that verse. The groaning of creation is the sound of the entire, and I mean the entire created order, awaiting the redemption God himself has promised. It's already, but it's not yet. And so we live in this tension. And Jesus knows that we will live in this tension. And it's because of that already not yet tension that Jesus invites us to pray our prayer. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means, Jesus, do it now, please. 
Would you please, Jesus, see fit to expand the reach of your effective will all the way to right here, right in this place where I'm standing, wherever that is in that moment for you, right here, right now. God, would you please get about arranging things on earth just the way you like them, just the way you intend for them to be? As John Ortberg famously says, may up there come down here. May up there come down here. May up there come down here into the midst of the Middle East and that powder keg. May up there come down here into the midst of the Koreas and everything going on there right now. And may up there come down here into places where infants are left in black plastic bags on the steps of orphanages. May up there come down here in places where HIV AIDS causes mothers and fathers to leave behind seven-year-old orphans to care for seven-minute-old orphans. And may up there come down here into our marriages that are all too often crumbling. And may up there come down here into relationships between brother and sister, dad and children, mom and children. All of our relationships, which all too often become the playground for the devil, the enemy himself, may up there come down here. That's what Jesus is inviting us to invoke when he says, pray this prayer. Pray this prayer. This is your prayer. This is our prayer. And by virtue of us praying that prayer, we actually imply something. Something that a guy that I was reading this week pressed in on me. I wasn't convinced. He convinced me. The coming of God's kingdom is a job that's fit for God. This coming of God's kingdom is a job fit for God. And at one level, that's easy to acknowledge. At another, it's not so easy. But by virtue of praying this prayer, we're saying, God, this coming of your kingdom, this bringing of your kingdom is way, and I mean way too big for us. You make this happen. You establish your kingdom. If this is ever going to happen, God, you're going to have to do it. And so I kind of felt like, well, don't we have a part to play in all of that? Come on. And we do. Because we step up and we play a role in God's kingdom coming. We absolutely do. But get this, we don't bring much, do we? We don't bring much. After all, what do we have that God could possibly need? If you said nothing, you'd be right. And even still, God takes what we have, meager as it is, and he does something grand with it. He multiplies it and he uses it to bring a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more of his kingdom right to where you're sitting, right to where you're working, right to where you're playing, right to where you're shopping, right to where you're living. Right where you are. He recruits us even with what little, and I mean little, that we bring, even with having nothing that he needs, to join him in the process of 
bringing his kingdom. Jesus actually taught on it. On your notes page, I'm very sorry, it says Romans chapter 19. There's no such thing, just so you know. Not sure what happened there. It's Luke 19. Cross out Romans, please. Right? Luke. What kind of pastor is this, anyway? Luke 19, 11 to 13. Look at what Jesus says. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them the story, a story, to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Now, Jesus' time on earth is rapidly counting down. He's about to go to the cross to die. They're coming to Jerusalem for all of that to begin to unfold, and there's this perception, this rumor, this impression that the kingdom of God was going to begin right away, and Jesus calls a time out. Uh-uh, he says. Uh-uh. And then he told this parable. He said a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. See any parallels there? Before he left, he called together ten of his servants, divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I am gone. He divides among his servants this amount of money, mina, it was called. It was a simple unit of currency in Jesus' day. And this nobleman told his servants that he wanted his mina invested while he was away. And when he returned, he actually expected an ROI, a return on investment. He entrusted it to their care. He expected a return. See any parallels there? God is the one who gives the minas, is he not? God is the one who is coming back to establish his kingship. God is the owner of all of the stuff. And yet, we have the privilege of partnering with him toward the bringing of his kingdom. Whoa. Now, let's bring it back around to this characteristic of spiritual championship that we're talking about. Spiritual champions strive to change the world in small but life-impacting ways. So God has given all of us, every single one of us, a mina, if you will, of time. Has he not? To some he has given more, to others he has given less. But regardless of how much he's given us, with our mina of time, we might not be able to change the entire course of human history. But that doesn't matter. We're still on the hook, so to speak. We're on the hook to use the time that God has given us to change the world in however small, though life-impacting ways. What can you do? You. Not the person next to you. You. What can you do to partner with God toward the bringing of his kingdom with the mina of time? that he has given to you. And I don't have your answer. I have lots and lots of ideas, but you and the Lord have to figure that out together where it is you will choose to invest the mina of time he has entrusted to your, here's the word, stewardship, to your care. And get this, God is absolutely counting on you, on us. He is counting on us to invest the mina of time he has given us, however large, however small it may be, toward the bringing of his kingdom, toward life 
impact, not just wasting it by watching television, right? God has given us all another mina, money in this case, a mina of money. To some he has given less, to others he has given more. And with whatever mina of money he's given us, he says, look, give to my church, give to my work. Why? Also, lives will be impacted. And with your money, just like with your time, God is counting on you, us, to invest the mina of money he has entrusted to our care, small or large as it may be, toward the bringing of his kingdom, toward life impact, not just toward accumulating the largest pile of stuff that any of us can accumulate. An investment toward life change. One more. God's given us all a mina of spiritual gifting, hasn't he? Every single one of us who follows Jesus Christ have been entrusted, endowed by God with a mina of spiritual gifting. To some, he's given the gift of teaching To some, he's given the gift of giving. To some, he's given the gift of wisdom. To some, he's given the gift of service. To some, he's given the gift of hospitality. To others, he has given the gift of shepherding, on and on. And so you see, with whatever mina of spiritual gifting he has given to you, given to us, he says, use the gifts I've given you so that lives will be impacted. Life impact. And with your spiritual gifts, just like with your time, just like with your money, God is actually counting on us to invest the gifts he's given us, large or small as they may be, all toward the bringing of his kingdom, all toward life impact. Not just sitting dusty on the shelf like some cheesy forgotten birthday gift. We're enamored with the big deal, aren't we? But God says, I'm not so concerned about the big deal. I'm concerned with you, us, stewarding whatever it is that I have empowered and endowed you with toward life impact. God's not impressed with the big deal. What he wants is us to simply be faithful with what we've been given. All from him. I got a note several weeks ago. It was from a woman whose husband of several decades had walked out on her and left their marriage. As you could imagine, this woman wrote of how this unexpected turn of events had left her absolutely devastated. In her words, seriously contemplating ending her life. She wrote, though, that somehow in the midst of the fog of all of that confusion and despair, she heard about a woman whose name was Lynn from Journey Church, the ministry of Journey Church called Divorce Care. She had no idea what that was, but she thought it must have something to do with what I'm going through. So she musters up enough courage to attend one session, and she liked it. And so the next week, she mustered up enough courage to attend another session, and then another, and then another, and then another. And then before long, she said in her note, 
God had used Lynn and God had used this divorce care ministry to heal her word, heal her deep wounds and set her on a whole new course of living. And she signed off on the note saying, I just wanted you to know how God used Lynn and the divorce care ministry in my life. It made a difference in my life. And I want you to know that Lynn is a delightful woman. Some of you know her. But the truth be told, she's a person, ordinary, just like you and just like me. She is not a super Christian. She just isn't. She very simply one day took an inventory of her life and she said, well, I have this mina of time and I have this mina of spiritual gifting. I'm going to start a divorce care ministry for people who have been wounded through the tragedy of divorce. And look what happened. It didn't make headlines in the newspaper and it won't be on the 24-hour news channels. But that doesn't matter. Because Lynn did just what God asks all of us to do. And look how God used her to bring about transformative life change. And God says to us, would you figure out how to do the very same thing? Would you figure that out? It might take some time. It might take some turning over of stones, some investigation, some trial and error, some bumping around. But would you do that very same thing? And God says, I hope you will because it's why you're on planet Earth, as a matter of fact. I hope you will. Would you take your things and set them aside? And I just invite you to go to prayer, if you would, please. Would you just speak to the Lord about what you're thinking about? Just tell God what's on your heart and your mind. You can do that now. And could I ask you please to keep your heads bowed and eyes closed during this time? Maybe as you sit here in this room today, you realize that you're a Christ follower, but for whatever reason, you felt like your contribution to the kingdom of God just can't or just won't be significant, just won't be very big, and so you've just sort of sidelined yourself. Nobody did it to you. You just did it. If that's you, would you please spend these moments in this quiet time Inviting the Lord to press in on your soul to the depths of your being. Ask him and invite him to challenge your heart and just give you a few ways. Maybe it's just one way. We'll take that. Just one way that you could and even should be about investing the mina of time, the mina of money, the mina of gifting that God's entrusted to your care, all toward life impact. All toward life impact. All toward bringing his kingdom up there, coming down here. And maybe there's some of you sitting in this room right now and you have yet to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
The truth is that you having an impact in somebody else's life in the eternal sense, it all starts in that place. It begins with you stepping into a relationship with God all through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you've never entrusted your soul to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, what, may I ask, is keeping you from doing that right now, today? You can move into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by praying along with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes something like this. God, thank you so much for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned, And today I realize, God, that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. With everything in me right now, God, I declare to you my belief that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of my sin, to bear it for me. And I ask you to please, by Jesus Christ's death, by the shedding of his blood, please forgive me and please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. I want you to start changing me. I need you to clean my life up. God, I'm asking you to orient my life all toward the bringing of your kingdom, all toward life impact. And that prayer, if you prayed it with me just then, is the most significant choice of your life. Nothing is more weighty. Not a single thing is more weighty than that. And it's so weighty that we ask people to tell us when they made that decision. Not in an embarrassing way. Nobody's going to call you out. Just between me and you. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes, I stepped across the line of faith in Jesus Christ right here, right now. I did that. You just let me see your hand. God, we want to be incredibly active about the bringing of your kingdom. May we be the furthest thing from passive, God. And may we please, God, never be enamored with the big deal. Would you please help us be enamored with your heart and your will and your desire for us to bring your kingdom in small but life-impacting ways. Just right where it is we're standing in that moment. Stuff that headlines won't ever get written about. Stuff that nobody beyond you and beyond us and beyond the person it touches will ever see, God. We don't care about that. We do not care about that. We care about you intersecting with the lives of people who you love and who you are pursuing and who you died for, Jesus. Thanks for trusting us. It's bold, God. It is incredibly bold. When we look upon ourselves and we look upon our lives, we look upon our frailty and our feebleness and our sinfulness. It's just bold of you to trust us and to use us. 
And we humbly say, we're in, we're with you. We'll do everything we can, God. We sure love you. Our lives, everything about them are as worship to you, God. Thanks for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray.